Welcome to Room 106. I'm Richard Garlick from Planning Magazine. And I'm John Gagan, also from Planning Magazine. Every week, we descend into Room 106, the world of pain in which professionals encounter all new planning information and extract the key things you need to know. In this bonus edition, we'll discuss the government's plans to allow councils to recover the full costs of processing certain planning applications. We'll also look at the other key elements for planning in last week's autumn statement, including ministers' plans to allow houses to be split into flats without a planning application. Later on, we'll be finding out what those who've worked closely with new housing minister Lee Rowley have made of him, and more generally, what his appointment means for planning. But before we get into that, John, tell us about the other key news stories from the past seven days. Well, obviously there was the autumn statement in which there was a number of big planning announcements, but we're going to talk about that in more depth later on. Alongside the autumn statement, there are a number of key announcements made by the government relating to major infrastructure planning. Firstly, the government is to include all renewable energy infrastructure projects under a new, what it calls, critical national priority, national planning policy presumption. And it's committed to bringing in in its words, a strong starting presumption for the use of overhead power lines outside of protected landscapes. And this has been revealed in an update to its energy national policy statements. The government has also proposed a series of measures designed to bring down the consenting time for major infrastructure projects, including what it calls a new ministerially-led forum to drive delivery, publishing spatial data on such schemes and confirming a one-year fast-track route for certain kinds of major infrastructure projects. Thirdly, as part of this same programme to speed up nationally significant infrastructure project consents, ministers plan to create a new government task force to look at the merits of adopting a more spatial approach to infrastructure planning and will consider how judicial review is working in the planning system. Beyond the autumn statement, plans from the government's housing delivery agency, Homes England, and house builder Taylor Wimpy for 1,100 homes on a greenfield site in Lancashire were given the go-ahead at appeal by junior housing department minister Felicity Buchan. The mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, has rejected plans for a 90-metre-high Las Vegas-style sphere in Stratford, East London, on design, heritage and amenity grounds. This is despite the local authority having been minded to approve the project. Elsewhere, the High Court has ordered a developer to completely demolish an unfinished six-storey block of flats in Kettering, Northamptonshire, for breaching its planning permission after the local authority granted permission for just four storeys to be built. Meanwhile, MPs on the Leveling Up Housing and Communities Committee are to investigate how planning and urban design can help children and young people. Fantastic. Well, many thanks for that, John. And of course, more details on each of those stories can be found on planningresource.co.uk. Also on the website, you'll soon be able to sign up to view our next webinar, taking place live at 9am on Tuesday the 12th of December, and on the subject of how to meet the new requirement to ensure that new development brings biodiversity improvements. So now to return to Room 106 for our deep dive. Can I persuade you to join me this week, John? Oh, go on then.
Well, here we are, back in room 106. We need to make our way to the Pit of Resignation, where the sector's reaction to the latest change in Housing Minister is traditionally collected, and where I hope I'll find our regular reporter, David Blackman. It's just down this rather rickety staircase. Let me see. Ah, hello, David. Oh, hello, Richard. Hello, John. Hi, David. So... You've been down here looking at all the reaction and sort of picking through the fallout from the um, the departure of Rachel McLean and the arrival of Lee Rowley as the uh, as the new housing minister. Can I start by asking you, have any more theories emerged about the reason for Rachel McLean's sacking? Well, uh, as 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 I'm sure it's the case for you, Richard, this is a this is an all too frequent visit to the reshuffle section. That perhaps they say that sort of one day every every Tory MP will be housing minister, housing and planning minister for at least fifteen minutes. But uh, we've had a lot of housing ministers over the last few years. The latest tally is sixteen, I think, since 2000, 2010. But this particular resignation struck people as particularly odd. I mean, it was part of a wider reshuffle of the government, but there didn't seem any particularly pressing reason to carry out uh, or, or change the identity of the housing and planning minister on this particular occasion. The theory, uh, it could be seen as part of a, of, a, of a wider rebalancing of Rishi Sunak's team. Rachel McLean was seen as a supporter of the, the right-wing side of the party, people like Kemi Badnock and Liz Truss. So her original appointment was perhaps seen as an attempt to mollify that particular camp of the, the party. But then on the other hand, a lot of um, high-profile right-wing Tories have survived the reshuffle. So that doesn't necessarily entirely stack up as an explanation. A more interesting theory, which I which I came across while um, while looking at this look at, looking at this topic, was whether she paid the price for preempting the king's speech. This may seem an odd thing to uh, to sack somebody over, given that the the contents of the king's speech were widely trailed across the media and the week beforehand. But uh, the important thing is here is here is who gets to preempt the king's speech. I suppose whether it's one of the high profile you know, number ten itself or whether the departments themselves do it. Uh, McLean's particular sin that it was seen was to um, widely talk about the contents of the of the King's speech at the Conservative Party conference. Uh, there were a lot of fringe events at the Conservative Party conference. She got a lot of uh, praise, in fact, for her hard work at the conference. I mean, I, I think somebody said to me that nobody probably did more fringe events and more events generally at the Conservative Party conference than Rachel McLean. But um, Yes, the fact that she was you know, talking quite widely about some of the measures that were going to come forward was seen as a little bit out of step and, and, and breaking protocol. Perhaps more senior figures could do that, but, but not, not necessarily her. And perhaps also it was uh, seen as potentially a dig at Michael Gove as well, who apparently is quite practised at um, making these pre-announcements to kind of bully his fellow ministers into certain steps. But uh, so perhaps it was kind of like um, almost in mafia speak, shooting the puppy. Well, uh, maybe that accounts for some of the um, uh, you know, very sympathetic reaction that there has been to um, McLean's um, removal. Um, she wasn't somebody who came into the role with what seemed like a great deal of sort of knowledge of the uh, of the sector. But as with so many planning ministers over the years, she uh, clearly uh, was growing into the role. Nonetheless, so she's gone, and we have a new housing minister. Has planning been confirmed as among Rowley's ministerial responsibilities? 
Well, unfortunately, um, as there, there's still a, um, a, a rather white blank on the ministerial responsibilities page of the of, of DLUC, um, as is often the case with reshuffles, it takes quite a long time for responsibilities to be divvied out amongst the junior ministerial ranks. However, um, if you look at the written parliamentary questions section of the of, of Hansard, Lee Rowley has been who, who is who has been appointed as Minister of State for Housing has been fielding the planning questions on behalf of the department. So I think it's probably safe to say that, um, as is usually the case, housing and planning have gone to get, remain together as part of the same portfolio. And of course, he's done the job before. Indeed, yes, yes. Uh, in the departure from uh, tradition, we have somebody, it was a kind of a bit of a blink and you might miss, might have missed it. But um, indeed, Lee Rowley, the uh, North East Derbyshire MP, was the Minister for Housing and Planning under Liz Truss's government. Okay, and what's the sort of reaction been to having somebody come back to the role? Well, I think it's um, the appointment of a new housing minister has been greeted with a collective groan across the planning sector, as, as, uh, as, 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 as is commonly the case, given the rapid turnover in the portfolio. But um, the general sentiment has been that um, if you're going to appoint anybody, it makes sense to appoint somebody who's done the job before. He knows a bit about the brief. He's also been within the department for the past year since his demotion from the housing and planning job to a, a more junior role within the department. He has actually remained within DLUC, uh, performing other roles like building safety and local government. So he's certainly built up experience within the department. He's also done some planning casework as well. So so he's built up that, that, that kind of nuts and bolts planning experience during the past year. So on balance, probably it's felt to be the best outcome from a, a, a fairly unsatisfactory position that the sector has been put in. Okay. And um, you've been talking to people who've worked closely with him in the past. How do they describe him? Well, I think he's, he's generally seen as somebody who's, who, who knows his own mind. Uh, personally, I saw him uh, during his very brief spell as, as housing and planning minister at the Conservative Party conference last year, appearing at, uh, at fringe events. He certainly came across as a very clear thinker. Also, quite a few people know him from his time on Westminster Council as well where he was a member of the um, Conservatives' sort of flagship authority for eight years. From people who know him from there, they say he came on there as, as somebody who's philosophically very rooted on the free market, libertarian right, right wing of the party. But also he's somebody who's, who's also pretty pragmatic. Most people who've dealt with him either at Westminster or in his role over the past year as, as a DLUC minister reckon that he's, he doesn't approach things from, a, from an ideological perspective but he's fairly pragmatic. But I mean, one thing that also comes across from when he was when he was at Westminster is that um, he was somebody who was fairly pro-development. He wouldn't necessarily follow the lead of his constituents on every occasion in opposing development. And I know his previous spell as housing minister was almost vanishingly brief, but what kind of impression did he leave? I think a pretty good one. I mean, it's hard to tell because he was in post, like the government itself, for such a short period. I think he impressed people, at, uh, not just me, but at, at the Conservative Party conference uh, while appearing on the fringe. In terms of sector engagement, I don't think he had much opportunity to build up an impression, partly because so much of Liz Truss's government uh, overlapped with party conference season when a lot of um, lobbyists and trade associations will be spending their time at party conference. There wasn't much time to sort of establish the kind of the um, the introductory meetings that you would that you probably normally expect with a minister. Okay, so is Rowley's appointment likely to signal a change of approach to planning? Probably not. Um, 
first of all, a very important factor is that um, he's working underneath um, a Secretary of State who's a, a very big beast in the Whitehall world. Uh, Michael Gove has set down a, a, a pretty. He's a very, he's a very sort of influential minister in his in his own right. And he's also sort of set out his own sort of policy position fairly recently in the King's Cross speech, where he sort of put an emphasis, of course, on regeneration, on building up Cambridge. On it's generally felt that um, that Rowley will be working within a um, a framework that's set pretty securely by by Michael Gove. Okay, and within that agenda, within that existing government agenda, which bits do people expect him to focus on? I think what people expect him to sort of to focus on is probably the renewed emphasis on regeneration as a constituency MP himself he tweets quite a lot about the regeneration of uh, Clay Cross a mining town in his constituency so that's clearly quite close to his heart and added to that I think that um, certain certain people in the policy community expect to see a strong emphasis on densification during his time as as, as housing minister okay and what's at the top of his to-do list well um, he's the, another reason why we don't expect to see massive departures is that actually there's quite a lot of work to be done. We've got all the secondary legislation that, that will be required to implement the levelling up bill, which of course was recently passed by Parliament. He's also got to deal with the response to the NPPF consultation, which of course is um, is long overdue. And also deciding what can meaningfully be done before an election. Um, we've only got, you know, depending upon who you talk to, we're, we, we've got either six months or 12 months until the next general election, probably sort of 12 months at a maximum. So there's not a great deal of time until the next general election. And of course, also, I suppose an interesting thing will be to watch to what extent he tries to submit his own policy ideas or or the agendas that he wishes to to push into the next Conservative manifesto, because of course, um, housing has emerged as um, as a real dividing line between the Labour and Conservatives over the last month with Labour's renewed enthusiasm for greenfield development. Um, so really, I, I, it looks like it's going to be sort of quite a political area between the two parties for the next 12 months. So it will be interesting to see what contribution he makes to that debate and to what extent he's going to be pushed up the batting order to um, to make the Tory case. Yes, yeah, very interesting. Okay, well, thank you very much for that, David. And I'll leave you here sifting through the uh, reaction to his appointment. Indeed. Let's hope this is uh, this is the last time we do this particular slot before the next election, Richard. Yes, yeah, well, we shall see. OK, John, well, the next thing we need to do is talk about the autumn statement in uh, a little bit more detail. Now, you're probably as well placed as anyone on the team to comment on the autumn statement in its entirety. We should probably head over to the part of Room 106 where they gather Treasury documents, which is a pretty dusty area, and I think we'll find that just around this corner. Yes, so here we are. So, John, first of all, just talk us through the key announcements for planning in the autumn statement. Well, there was lots in there about planning, and there hadn't been anything leaked in the papers in advance about these planning announcements as they're often is these days. So I suspect it was a surprise to most people in the sector. The most significant measure was the announcement of a new premium planning service. The Chancellor said local authorities would be allowed to recover the full costs of major business applications, but the fees would need to be refunded if they failed to meet what he called accelerated deadlines. 
Alongside this, he also announced the allocation of £32 million for both housing and planning, and this would include helping councils clear what he called planning backlogs, as well as supporting the delivery of new homes. Jeremy Hunt further promised that the government will consult on a new permitted development right to enable one house to be converted into two flats, and he said this would help streamline the planning system. And finally, the government will invest £110 million in nutrient neutrality mitigation schemes this financial year and the next one. Okay, well, to look at one of those uh, announcements in a bit more detail, tell us a bit more about the premium planning service. What, What do we know about it? Well, it sounds very significant, but the details are a bit vague at the moment. It will apply only to major business applications, not housing. Councils will be able to recover the full costs of these applications in return for having to meet what the government calls guaranteed faster timelines. And if they fail to meet those, fees will be refunded automatically and businesses can have their applications processed for free. The Treasury published a document just after Hunt's address to Parliament, as it usually does, and in it, it said these new premium planning services across England would have guaranteed accelerated decision dates for major applications and fee refunds where these aren't met. It said these services will improve the existing patchwork approach of planning performance agreements. So that suggests they'll be related to planning performance agreements or something quite similar. And these agreements are, well, they're drawn up between councils and developers. Applicants often pay very large sums in return for a bespoke service and that usually will set timescales that the applications have to be determined by. So it sounds like it might be something similar to planning performance agreements. Elsewhere, the Treasury document said the new service would involve limiting use of extension of time agreements, which was interesting. I mean, they're often used by councils to, again, agreements with the developers where they agree to extend time so they can miss the statutory deadlines for determining applications and the developer agrees to that. And it also said there'd be measures to improve transparency and reporting of planning authorities' records in delivering timely decision-making. So that's quite interesting. And um, yeah, I'm sure some councils might be quite worried about that, but Mm. um, yeah, I'm sure our readers would be interested (laughs) to see um, on this because obviously councils do, there's obviously data published at the moment about decision-making timescales. So it'll be, I'm not sure how it's going to build on that or expand that. The Chancellor said the new service would be introduced next year. So given that timescale, which is pretty quick, given that we're nearly at the end of 2023, you'd imagine you know it's not going to be implemented via primary legislation because there won't be time for that. When he was speaking in the House of Commons the day after the autumn statement, some MPs, including Tory backbenchers, raised concerns about how this new premium service would impact on local authority planning department resources because obviously mm-hmm. they're very stretched at the moment. And Hunt said he, he'd had extensive discussions with the community secretary, Michael Gove, to ensure that we implement these reforms in a way that does not lead to unintended consequences. He said the most important thing is that by allowing the biggest applications to have full cost recovery with respect to local councils, we can start to get more resources which means we can train up more planning officers and avoid delays, not just for the biggest applications, but for all of them. The intention is that this will generate better resources for for councils, but obviously that'll be some way in the future. And 
yeah, councils are in a, a very difficult, many councils are in a very difficult position at this time. So mm. um, I think many would like to see a sort of immediate injection of um, extra resources. Interesting. Okay. What about the new permitted development, right? Well, again, the details are pretty scant at this point. The government said it will consult on a new um, this new permitted development right early in the new year, and it would enable one house to be converted into two flats. And the chances of the new rights would be implemented in 2024. So again, that's a pretty tight timescale, given there'd have to be a consultation on that and you know changes to the permitted development order and. Mm. So, um, yeah, you'd imagine that consultation will be um, coming fairly shortly. Okay, well, it, it, yeah, it, it sounds like another attempt to eke more homes, I guess, out of the existing built stock. I mean, there's been so much done with permitted development rights in the last 10 years to, um, I guess, ensure that new homes can be created without any more new building being done. I'm sure there'll be reservations in some quarters about the way in which these kind of rights are taking pressure off councils to allow new development because it gives them a way of getting closer to hitting their housing targets without actually seeing as much new building as you might previously have expected in their areas. What other announcements were there in the autumn statement? Well, there was, there was plenty of other stuff that planners should be aware of. So I've already mentioned the premium planning service, the new permitted development rights, this funding for housing and planning and the nutrient neutrality mitigation funding. In addition, there was the announcement of new permitted development rights to ease consents for heat pumps. National planning rules will be revised to support electric vehicle charge points. The Treasury said the uh, national planning policy framework would be amended to ensure the planning system prioritises the rollout of electric vehicle charge points, including charging hubs. Funding to increase the use of local development orders, which is interesting, £5 million for greater use of these orders for key commercial projects. Uh, and these orders involve a sort of pre-grant of planning permission in specified areas for certain kinds of development. Beyond that, there's an announcement of four new investment zones, and these zones involve areas that host these zones have to show how planning tools accelerate the progress of whatever sector it is that's at the centre of their bid for investment and they have to demonstrate improved planning performance. So that's quite relevant. And these new investment zones were announced in the East Midlands, the West Midlands, Greater Manchester and Wrexham. Also four new devolution deals where um, Whitehall agrees to devolve powers to local areas, usually cities or combined authorities. And um, often this involves the transfer of housing powers and sometimes planning powers. Uh, Jeremy Hunt announced the new deals for Hull and East Yorkshire, Lancashire, Cornwall and Greater Lincolnshire. And interestingly, the Treasury also said that potential devolution deals will be extended to county areas across England. So that's something to, to keep an eye on. And there's more funding promised, £450 million for the local authority housing fund to deliver 2,400 new homes and funding for what the government calls housing quarters that were previously announced in Cambridge, Leeds and London. And that's totalling £30 million. Okay, thanks for that. And in terms of reaction to that permitted development right, 
what kind of feedback has there been from the sector? Interestingly, I noticed that the Daily Telegraph, which is a key tourist sporting newspaper, had articles in the days following that, both welcoming the move from the perspective of landowners and homeowners and the opportunities there, but also criticising it as well with concerns about suburbia being transformed, with housing being turned into high-density flats. That could obviously have a big impact on the character of areas. So I think that's going to be a key concern. Sector commentators have raised a number of points. Obviously, there's lots of details to emerge about this. So the usual caveats about awaiting detail. But some said that key details that are going to have to be considered if this right is ever implemented is how it's going to affect the setting of the area, how it's going to affect neighbours and amenities. And obviously, they're issues that affect most permitted development, most residential permitted development rights. And we've already seen a lot of concern and controversy over that that it's going to work for some types of property, but perhaps not for others, and a one-size-fits-all approach wouldn't work, that it might have minimal impact on the planning and residential property sectors. And again, this, this concern that we have a lot with other PD rights, that if it's widely taken up, it's going to have an impact on local services without any financial mitigation that councils usually receive, the planning gain from Section 106, or the community infrastructure levy where the impact is offset and um, presumably that will be the same for this right. But again, we, we await the details. And uh, what kind of reaction has there been to the other announcements? Well, the plans for a premium planning service has prompted lots of reaction. Commentators have warned that it raises a number of questions. It could cause unintended consequences. Although we've heard Jeremy Hunt say that he's spoken to Michael Gove about how they can avoid that. Obviously, we're awaiting further details, but some of the concerns that have been raised so far is we've already talked about the concerns about the shortage of planning offices and councils, how it might impact on council resources and their ability to deliver this service. So other concerns that have been raised by commentators is that it could result in councils prioritising commercial applications over housing because it looks like this is only going to affect major business applications, not residential. They've also questioned what what would count as a major business application. It's quite vague at the moment. That it may only affect a very small proportion of applications in any one planning authority area. The RTPI has estimated that only 15% of planning applications that local authorities process come from businesses. So we could be looking at quite a small number It's also been pointed out that it's going to require another amendment to the fees order, which is about to be amended with increased planning fees that are coming into effect shortly. The question about how it relates to the existing proposal to increase planning fees. And a point that was frequently raised was that councils might be tempted if they are faced with these challenging timescales and the risk of losing an application fee may simply just refuse proposals. So they meet these deadlines. And so, you know, you'd end up with, obviously that would be an unintended consequence if um, councils just increase refusals so they don't lose their, their application fees. Fantastic. Okay. Well, thank you very much for that, John. And um, there's obviously a lot to follow up on that in terms of fleshing out the announcements in the in the autumn statement. Obviously, a, a hell of a lot across the board to uh, to translate those um, those announcements into something that can actually change the system. But they, as you say, they do sound... Some of them sound potentially quite significant. 
Absolutely. There's lots to keep an eye on in the next coming months. Okay. Well, I think that more or less wraps things up for this week. So time to get out before there are any more announcements or decisions. Great. That's another edition completed. We'll be back next week with another update on the past fortnight's biggest planning news stories. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe wherever you normally get your podcasts. And to get a daily bulletin of planning news, plus weekly analysis and specialist bulletins, subscribe at planningresource.co.uk. Our thanks to producers Till Owen from Haymarket Business Media and Daisy Chaku from Rethink. Thanks for listening.